Okay, okay, okay. Uh, okay, we're alive. I am happy to announce that the winner is all about E. Parasite. Kramer versus Kramer. Chicago! Yes, I saw. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. One flew over the cuckoo's Shakespeare in Love. May I have the envelope, please? It is March 25th, 1996. We are at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion back in downtown L.A., where we are at the 68th Annual Academy Awards, honoring the best films of 1995, with our host... Returning for the second time, Miss Whoopi Goldberg. And it is now time for the big award of the night, the envelope, please. And the Oscar for Best Picture is presented to Braveheart. Welcome back to another episode of The Envelope, Please, a podcast where we are watching and discussing every Best Picture Oscar winner, and we're doing it in chronological order. We are your hosts. I'm Sam. I'm Rance. Back in DTLA, and we got Whoopi Goldberg back again. Is this the last time she hosts? No, it's not. No, she hosts She hosts four times. She does host four times. Okay. Well, yeah. Should be a bigger number. Should be a bigger number. <laughs> I, it's so bizarre to me that she just, she was doing it every couple of years or so, and then they just stopped. Wild. I don't know. Wild I think nowadays it's, it's maybe like that she, maybe she's considered a little too uh, hot button because she is so expressive with her political opinions on The View. I mean, I don't know. Maybe she isn't as, um... You know, I think in the 90s, she was considered somebody that everybody liked. And now, and the second somebody talks about their political views, you know, particularly those liberal Hollywood types, they um, they end up alienating, uh, they they think they are alienating the, uh, the South and whatnot. But you know what? I say screw them because I want, I want Whoopi back. I would watch her do it today. I bet she she'd be great. I bet she would too. I bet I bet she would. And I also bet that she would get a lot more viewers back. She would bring yeah. viewers back to ABC and watching yes. it. I think she would. I really I think the Oscars should do something like that. Bring back a host that, you know, is tried and true from the heyday of the Oscars, which we're in right now. We're getting like 40 plus million viewers on these Oscar ceremonies throughout the 90s. So, they were doing something right. And I think the hosts are a big part of that. Billy Crystal um, Whoopi Goldberg, big popular um, stand-up comics who know what they're doing, you know? I have to correct something I said okay. last week on that note. I said that David Letterman hosted more than once. That is incorrect. He only hosted one time because the reviews for his hosting were not very good. So oh, I, I got you. that wrong. Yes. You are um, a liar and I'll never trust you again. <sighs> I mean, what are we going to do? You know, it's only uh, taken you 68 ceremonies to learn that I'm just <laughs> bullshitting my way through. <laughs> um, a couple of interesting things here about this year in Oscar, though. Uh, Emma Thompson becomes the first person ever to win Oscars for both acting and screenwriting. I love that it's a woman, and I love that it's Emma Thompson. Beautiful. Have you seen her Golden Globes 
acceptance speech when she wins for screenwriting? No, what happens? It's hilarious. She writes her acceptance speech as though it's, um... Oh, God. Who's the original author of Sense and Sensibility? What's Jane Austen? Jane Austen, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> she, she writes her acceptance speech as what she um, would imagines Jane Austen would say if she were accepting the Golden Globe for screenwriting. It's funny as fuck. I love it. Just after this, go watch it on YouTube. It's really, really funny. Well, that sounds absolutely delightful. <laughs> it and does. I may just go do that very thing. Well, that's... <laughs> That's wonderful. So we got a great host. We got some history making. Although there was some controversy this ceremony as well. Um, It was protested by the Rainbow Coalition, which um, were wanting more diversity in nominations and films for Hollywood. So this is Oscar So White before Oscar So White. Um... And you know, Whoopi acknowledges this in in her speech, but she sidesteps it, kind of. She doesn't, like, get involved in it or make a real opinion about it. She, like, just says all of the different causes that um, she's representing, you know, because there's... This is the heyday of ribbon-wearing. And she just, like, goes through a, li- a laundry list of all the things she might... She could be wearing a, a ribbon for, and um, she does it in a way that doesn't leave many breaths, and it's actually quite charming. But it's interesting. Um, it's interesting to see uh, the Academy respond to this kind of. They make Quincy Jones one of the producers, and they get Whoopi back, um, kind of in response to the whiteness of the nominations. And, you know, this is going to be a recurring issue um has already been a recurring issue in the academy and it's something that um we're we're still working on reconciling in part because of the makeup of of membership and in part because of the just lack of opportunities bingo so gross so it kind of seems like they have Whoopi hosting and Quincy Jones there as like a band-aid over this mm-hmm. larger issue of representation within Academy members. And as we were just talking about a second ago, Whoopi Goldberg, 2021 Whoopi Goldberg, probably would have made a political statement about the protesters outside and would have given her point of view, which is probably yeah. why she's not asked to host. <laughs> it seems like she, mean, probably, that... she probably played nice, though. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, it's what, it's, you know, Whoopi, um, Whoopi at this time is kind of just like a, kind of an America sweetheart type of, um, person, you know, this, I, I, people today, or the younger people today may not remember this at all, but in the 1990s, Whoopi Goldberg was a, above the title movie star. Yes. Who headlined some huge box office hits, uh, throughout the decade, and, um, you know, now I think people know her mainly because of the view and they don't realize that they're talking about an egotter you know we're talking about um somebody you know and she was picked i don't remember if we talked about this when we uh, covered the color purple but you know she was picked out of obscurity by uh mike nichols and uh who brought her to broadway and uh her stand-up to broadway and you know is she ended up um being seen by steven spielberg and the rest is history yeah so you know but her tony is actually for producing um the play thoroughly modern millie 
She produced that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the most random thing I've heard today. Okay. Or the I musical, I should say. Right. Yes. That's and she d- she doesn't have a primetime Emmy. She has a couple of daytime Emmys. Correct, but... correct. EGOT nonetheless. Yeah. EGOT nonetheless. It's an EGOT. It's an All right, EGOT. let's talk about some performers who were left off the list this year. Tell me some of your snubs, rants. You know, um, I got I got a couple. Okay. Um, I got a couple here. Uh, the first one I want to mention is um, the first of a trilogy of films. Could be more than a trilogy uh, if they decide to make another one. Ah, you know what I'm going to talk about. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. Top um, my list, too. Yes, please tell us. Uh, but the fact that it is not represented at all in any of the nominations, it should be there for, for writing, uh, for the performances of Ethan Hawke and um, uh, uh, Julie Delphi. Um, and um, it, the direction is just uh, impeccable. It is one of the most romantic movies ever made. Um, the sequel is maybe the best sequel ever made. And the third one is also exceptional. I'm talking, of course, about Before Sunrise. Oh, um, oh, so good. It is um, about two people who meet um, randomly by chance in... Um, oh, shoot. Now I'm trying to remember which... The first one takes place in... Um, I think they're in, in... in Vienna. They're... She meet, okay, Jesse meets Celine on a train from Budapest, and they strike up a conversation. Jesse's going to Vienna to catch back uh, to catch a flight back to the United States when she's returning to Paris, and they reach Vienna. It is Vienna, um, and so they end up spending just a night together in Vienna, and they're so in sync with each other, and it's just like uh, meeting that amazing person who you know you're supposed to spend the rest of your life with, but you have to leave in the next morning, and you don't know what's going to happen. And it is so romantic and so... Um, just so uh, moving and beautiful, and um, I, I just... I. It was a small hit. It was a small movie. You know, it wasn't something that lit the box office on fire. You know, it... It only it it made five over five million dollars. It only cost two point five to make, you know. Um, and then ten so years it, later, it went two hundred percent over its budget. So good for you, or I should say, recouped its budget two hundred percent. Yeah. So it did what it was supposed to do. And then nine years later, they made a movie. And then nine years after that, they made another movie. Um, but uh, which are before sunset and before midnight. Get sure. Wondering. Um, so the Craig's reviews were fantastic, but it just didn't have the, I guess, you know, Columbia distributed it, but I just, I guess it didn't have the, um, it came out right at the beginning of the year and it didn't have the money to push forward a campaign, I guess, later in the year. But, you know, Richard Linklater, this is his, I mean, like the series is his crown jewel, but I think... Oh, man. I don't know if this one or the second one is my favorite. We'll have that conversation in 2004. But True. That's a tough conversation, which one is best. This one is just so sweet. It's the perfect yeah. example of what a slice-of-life movie is. Like You're just following this yeah. couple as they're walking around Vienna talking. They're just talking, mm-hmm. getting to know each other for an hour and a half. And that's all the movie mm-hmm. is, but it's so yeah. riveting. I agree with you. I think the performances 
definitely deserve to be nominated the screenplay as well. And, and, and honestly, this could be in the best picture race, and I wouldn't. It honestly could be upset about it because we're gonna get to the winner. <laughs> um, <laughs> shady, shady. <laughs> what else do you have? My other big snub um, is the complete shutout of um, Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, <laughs> um, which is a, a gay classic at this point. It's a cult classic, but it actually was a huge box office hit for that type of film in 1995. Believe it or not, Tu Wong Fu, um, I'm going to give you the exact figure because I'm that person. Please do. Made for made 47 million at the box office in 1995 which is pretty darn good for a movie about drag queens that is really good (laughs) it's probably because rupaul's in it rupaul does have a great cameo in the movie (laughs) well well here we all are again another year flies by and it's time to crown a new drag queen of the year may i have the envelope please um, and so does uh, um, uh, um, Coco Peru. Mm. Um, isn't she? I didn't make that up, did I? I Hold don't on. remember. The last no, time I, I saw this, yes, movie. Coco Peru. Okay, Coco Peru. Um, uh, Robin Williams has a cameo in it as well. Um, Naomi Campbell has a cameo in it, and of course, the woman of the title, Julie Newmar, also has a cameo as herself in the film. Um, but the movie is about uh, three drag queens um, who go on a cross-country trip from New York to L.A. Um, and they're going to be competing in a um, drag show um, in L.A. But their car breaks down in a tiny, tiny town in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of people that they're afraid of because they might be bigoted. Um, and, uh, they end up kind of just making the town turn into something magical. And, uh, they help a woman, um, confront, uh, her abusive husband. Of course, that woman is played by our patron saint, Stalker Channing. And, (laughs) and they, um... They uh, help a an old woman who has not spoken in many, many years uh, actually start talking and being alive again. Um, and uh, there is uh, a, a romance uh, that is in it as well that has some twists and turns. And, you know, the big thing is the movie, these people in the town don't, um, don't seem to realize that these are men dressed as women. <laughs> they um, they don't seem to get that. Um, now, if we were to deci- dissect this movie a little bit further, it's very progressive for 1995. You know, nowadays, I think we have a better understanding of the line between a... Well, I mean, the movie has a great line that explains the difference between uh, someone who is trans and someone who's a drag queen and, um, you know, Wesley Snipes delivers that line in the, in the convertible. But I think there probably would be a little bit more, um, education and sensitivity towards that subject today. Um, of course this movie is 25 years old. So, um, things were a little bit, uh, different than the fact that this got made and distributed by, um, Universal in 1995 is absolutely, um, unbelievable 
and um, it truly is just a it's just a gorgeous and sensitive movie it's directed by a woman which is amazing Bivan Kidron is her name um, and the music is also by a woman Rachel Portman I just uh, I love this movie I personally think that um, Patrick Swayze's performance in the lead role is fantastic. I particularly like the moment where he tries um, to go home to see his family mm. and his um, mom, I believe, uh, sees him from a distance in the convertible, you know, all in his drag gear in his convertible. And she shuts the door and the camera does a quick dolly out from his face. And it's just such a great little, like, hope being taken away moment. I love that. Um, I think the script is wonderful. Um, I think the costume design is fantastic. I think there's a lot of categories that I would accept this in. And so. also, we talked about a couple of years ago in discussing Tom Hanks in Philadelphia and how important that representation was on the screen. Here we have Patrick, uh, Patrick Swayze and Wesley Snipes playing drag queens. Yeah. That's that's pretty crazy thinking about what their stature was like in Hollywood. These kind of big buff leading men in you know playing heterosexual roles. Here they are playing these gay drag queens. That's kind of inc- that's kind of crazy. Yeah, and we're about to get a few years of gay themed uh major studio comedies uh coming out. Um uh, a little trend of uh, uh, you know movies like In and Out and uh, The Birdcage. Um, there is kind of a little. They have some success, and this is all important stuff for our community. Um, yes. The release and acceptance of these movies, but this is a great little film. Has a great ensemble cast. Blythe Danner is also in it. I love her. Uh, John Legismo uh, plays the uh, a third drag queen. Uh, Chichi Rodriguez mm-hmm. um, and Wesley Snipes, Noxima Jackson, and Patrick Swayze's Vita Bohem. So, um, uh, and they're all just so good. I I can't recommend it enough. And it's it's kind of a weirdly family friendly film too. Mm-hmm, I feel so. like um, I feel like a lot of people. I you know like last year we talked about Priscilla Queen of the Desert, which may be the better movie of the two, but. Um, but that movie has a lot of uh, really adult content in it. Uh, this movie is a little bit more watered down, and it's family friendly. And I think it's something that, um, you know, if you are in a per- progressive family with children, this is a good way to introduce them to people who are maybe a little bit different. True. 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 Those are some good snubs. I have a couple more to add to that. Uh, in the Best Actress category, I would have liked to have seen Toni Collette here for Muriel's Wedding. I think that is a hilarious movie, and she's so good. Um, I always want to see more comedies being represented at the Oscars, and this would have been a really fun one to nominate. I also think it's kind of crazy. We don't have Tom Hanks here for Best Actor in Apollo 13. Houston, we have a problem. That's a little odd to me, especially with all the love the Academy always throws his way. Somehow he mm-hmm. missed the nomination for this one. And then my final one is for Best Screenplay. I would have liked to have seen Seven included in the screenplay category from Andrew Kevin Walker. I love Seven. I think it is one of 
the best sort of noir thriller murder mysteries that we have had in a long, long time. And I think the screenplay is what really shines. It's what everyone talks about, you know? Who's in the box? No, oh, what's in the box? Not take it, give me the what's gun. in the fucking box? Give me the gun. Come on, that is that line is iconic now. Deserved a nomination. Um, you know, that's that's very fair. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I think those are some good snubs, Sam. That's 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 well, my thank contribution. You. Thank you. Well, let's <laughs> let's dive a little deeper into some of these. Is there any movie in particular you would like to shine a spotlight on, Renz? Um, you know, I there's there's a lot I like about 1995, and I thought um I thought like oh, okay, which of these um you know this is I mean it's just a great little year. You know, you got um the relaunch of the Bond franchise that, you know, I love with Pierce Brosnan stepping into the role. And even though he really only has one really good Bond movie, which is golden eye that comes out this year. Um, he is such a great bond and he's Pierce Brosnan. And so this, uh, gives us Pierce Brosnan, the movie star. He used, he was started more of his TV person. And, um, Sandra Bullock begins her career as a rom-com superstar this year. Um, with the absolutely great Christmas movie, While You Were Sleeping. <laughs> truth, um, truth. Which, I mean, if I was going to say snub, it could be... A, that's another great screenplay category. <laughs> I also will say, Sandra Bullock doesn't get nominated until she breaks the mold of what Sandra Bullock's supposed to be, but nobody does these better. Absolutely. You know? Um, her... Meg Ryan, Julie Rob- Julia Roberts, and the 90s in rom-coms does not get better. Um, there's also another a great Meg Ryan kind of uh, rom-com dramedy uh, French guest that comes out this year as well. Mm. Um, it has Kevin Klein, FYI. Okay. Um, uh, but then if we're going to talk about spotlighting. <laughs> I... I first want to give a shout out to uh, a movie that was nominated for art direction um, and cinematography um, called A Little Princess. Aww. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that movie. Um, which is a very, very sweet uh, telling of a um, oft-told story. Um, it was made with Shirley Temple back in the 30s. And um, this version has such a unique... It's Alfonso Cuaron. So, I mean, that gives you an idea of like the level of um, artistry that is behind this movie. And it he just makes it such a magical story from the beginning when they're in India um, to when she ends up going to this... Um, this you know, like boarding school for girls thing. Um, and, um, the thing I find so amazing about it is that so much of it, in fact, virtually almost the entire movie was shot, um, at Warner brothers studios in Burbank. And, um, and it doesn't feel like it is, but they took one of the backlot sets and they built the exterior, of um the uh of the it's not an orphanage it's it's uh or is it an orphanage it's like what a boarding school no you're right it's boarding like a, school yeah 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 
Um, and they built that on what's called Hennessy Street, right by the Annie Orphanage, actually. And they built it in the middle of the street and then redid the entire thing. And if you know it and you see it, you're like, oh, this looks... The way they transform this is so cool. And they took the jungle um, area at Warner Brothers and made that into part of India for the movie. So they just took all the lot and then built everything else in sound stages there. Um, and it's one of the best uses, I think, in the last... 30 years of um of a studio lot uh to create the art direction for a film i also feel like i would like to highlight spotlight and highlight i have a highlighter and i'm gonna spotlight <laughs> i don't know i i tried to save it but it didn't really work um uh, a movie that uh did not win either original song or musical score, but uh, maybe it should have. <laughs> <laughs> it's Toy Story. You are a toy. You weren't the real Buzz Lightyear. You're now uh, you're an action figure. You are a child's plaything. Um, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I had to mention it somewhere in snubs. I think Toy Story, the first Pixar animated film uh it definitely lives up to hype i still think it it may be the best one of of all of the pixar movies and that's i think saying something um and maybe it's because it came out at just the right time for me you know i was uh eight when this came out seven 1995 seven seven i was seven um and uh and i saw it in theaters and i remember the short that plays before the movie and the little bouncing light. And I mean, like I vividly remember being in the theater, seeing it and being so scared for Woody and Buzz. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to say anything about snubs for other categories that could be included in, because I think where it really shines and where it should have won is this Randy Newman score, which in my opinion just encapsulates the feeling of friendship and the song is great and we all know the song um and i personally think it's it's better than colors of the wind even though i think colors of the wind is an iconic disney song i also think pocahontas is a really problematic movie yeah. um so <laughs> i i think I would have preferred the other Disney distribution to win out um, this time around. Uh, but I I gotta say, there is not a better marriage of a song and a score in a movie than Toy Story. Well said. Yeah, that movie's great. So great. Okay, I'm gonna spotlight a movie that I'm sure you know exactly what it's going to be. I'm gonna talk about Meryl. <laughs> We're gonna talk about Meryl. In the Bridges of Madison County. Oh my County. god. Oh, I thought She Devil came out this year. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, we already talked about oh, that movie. Mm, okay. No. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this is my favorite Meryl Streep performance. This <gasps> is. Have the we arrived? One. We've arrived at your we favorite? All these We've years. Made it. We've been waiting and wondering and like, oh, 
Will it be Iron Weed? Oh will it God. be? <laughs> or will it be the Iron Lady? No. Will it be the Iron Lady? Will it be Mamma Mia? No, it's... It is huh. the Bridges of Madison County. So in this movie, she's playing Francesca, an Iowa housewife from Italy. And she's growing tired of her life there on the farm. She's in a loveless marriage with her husband. So when her family goes off to the state fair for four days without her, she stays at home to take care of the farm, she meets a man named Robert Kincaid, who is a photographer from the National Geographic, played by Clint Eastwood, who also directs this movie. So he's looking for one of the uh, famous covered bridges in Iowa, Roseman Bridge, and he's looking for it for a photo shoot uh, that he has to do for National Geographic, but he's gotten lost. So he stops at her farm, asks for directions, she hops in the truck with him, takes him to the bridge, and then before long, of course, a romance strikes up, an affair strikes up. Um, yes, and the tragic part is they know that it has to end as soon as the family comes back, just because Francesca is not going to drop her family that she's been with for years and years and years, and also a man that got her out of war-torn Italy basically saved her life. She feels like she owes her life to this family. Um, this is the ultimate tearjerker. It is like the ultimate romance, tragic romance. And the scene that really clinches it for me, I think, is near the end. Once her family has returned and the affair with Robert has ended and she's out running errands with her husband and it's on their drive back from town, they're stopped at a stoplight behind this truck. And Francesca realizes that this is Robert's truck. So when the stoplight turns green, the truck doesn't move and her husband's honking on the horn, what's this guy waiting for? And of course, we all know he's waiting for Meryl Streep to get out of the truck and join him. They can run away. And, the, oh gosh, there's just shots of her with her hand on the, the car door, like, willing herself to open it and just run to Robert. But she doesn't. She doesn't do it. And eventually, Clint Eastwood drives away, and she knows that she's lost him forever. Her loyalty to her family is what keeps her there. Um... Yeah, it's just, it's gut-wrenching stuff, and I think it's Meryl Streep at her best. And I think this is some of her best dialect work. We've talked about this a lot. In the 80s, she kind of became famous for doing, you know, a very dramatic performance with this accent on there. And I think this is one of her best. She does Italian very, very well. No, you're not going to be made to feel anything, period, because you have carved out this little part for yourself in the world where you get to be a voyeur and a hermit and a, and a lover whenever you feel like it. And the rest of us are supposed to be incredibly grateful for this brief moment that you touched her. Go to hell! It isn't human not to be lonely, and it isn't human not to be afraid! You're a hypocrite and you're a phony! And I wish, God, I wish that this was her third Oscar. Oh, how I wish. <laughs> but it's not. We'll get to that later. <laughs> you know, the only thing that makes it... Um, not okay that this isn't her third oscar is the fact that the speech she gives for her third oscar and the dress she is wearing at that moment are are the things of legend that i mean she dressed up like an oscar come on <laughs> she, she knew what she was doing literally never looked better um she did the assignments. i she understood what was about to happen and she completed the assignment no um uh I, I I agree with you. I think that this is at the top for her. Um, you know, we have a lot of great Meryl performances to happen, to have, to 
to come. But this one was a pretty important one in her history because after the run of nominations in the 1980s, and there was a little bit of, of Meryl fatigue. Mm-hmm. And um, and she had a couple movies that did that were out of her normal, um, you know, hoity-toity Meryl um, genre. She did Death Becomes Her that we talked about. She did The River Wild, which you talked about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> sure did. It is a good movie. <laughs> She had some, she had a couple missteps. The House of the Spirits didn't do very well, you know, uh, but she, she didn't work as much either. She wasn't making as many movies for a few years and she did not get a nomination between Postcards and Bridges of Madison County, Postcards on the Edge and Bridges of Madison County. That's five years without a nomination. Um, so in a way, it kind of looked like her incredible run was over, kind of in the way that uh, she was also over 40 at this point, which we all know Hollywood hates that when women do that, when they get older than 40. How dare um, they? I mean, really. Um, I mean, but she kind of, um, you know, it, it was looking like a Greer Garson situation where we're not going to get another nomination, maybe one ever or uh, not for a while. And then this movie happened and it brought her back to the forefront of, uh, nomination consideration and she started getting uh some better roles there's another period of eclipse that happens a little bit later in her career um but uh, and then and then she surges and becomes the Meryl we know and love today but i think that this particular performance is extremely pivotal and it's probably this film is necessary for the rest of her career to happen Oh, well said. Totally well said. And it should be noted that after this, she does not go longer than five years without another nomination. That is the longest stretch of time she has gone without being nominated. So you're absolutely correct. Kudos to Bridges. I just want to say one more thing before we move on. Babe had seven nominations before Sunset had zero. Before Sunrise. (laughs) Before Sunrise. Um... Babe had uh, Batman Forever had three nominations before Sunrise had had zero. zero. Uh, yeah, this is okay. Yeah, let's you know what? Let's just get into it. Let's get into our main event here. Let's talk about the best picture winner, Braveheart. Okay, Braveheart is a story of William Wallace, a Scottish rebel in the late 13th century who gathers and leads an army in an attempt to defeat England and gain independence for Scotland. Um, oh, nice. Nicely oh, thank done. you. Yeah. Thank you. Five wins, ten nominations, Ugh. had the most nominations of any movie, which I think that's a little obvious. It's a period piece. It's a three-hour-long epic. I feel like those are always the shoe-in for the most nominations. Mm-hmm. But I do have to admit, it's five wins is a little crazy to me. It's a little too much. I think we went a little too cuckoo bananas here for Braveheart this year. I guess Apollo 13 was the one that people were probably like, oh, that one. Because it was Suspected. a huge hit. Huge hit. Um, and also, we have Ron Howard iconic. directing it. You know what I yes. mean? And he has been... 
but directing he was now snubbed. for a while, and he, he was, was snubbed. snubbed. I think that was he the first not... indicator that yes. Apollo 13 was not going to win Best Picture. Yeah, and Ron Howard does not get his Oscar for a few more years. True. Um, but uh, Mel Gibson has an Oscar for directing, in case anyone forgot that. And it's he won. for this movie. He won that for this is, movie. That is three hours long. Sam, yes. why are all of our movies so long? Last week we had to watch a three-hour movie. This week we had to watch a three-hour movie. Next week we have to watch a three-hour movie. The week after that we have to watch a three-hour movie. Oh, why are they so long, Sam? Why You're are so they right. so long? You are so right. Um, why? <laughs> I really don't know. And you know, I was as I was watching Braveheart, I was trying to like break it down because normally a movie that's three hours long, these epics we've been watching. They're very yes. clearly brought into three chunks, the first, the second, the third hour. And it seems like the entire second hour of this movie is a battle. It's it battle is a sequences. fight. I've never and seen so is, many battle sequences in my life. There's a lot of battle sequences. There's a yes. lot of violence. There's a lot of gore. This movie almost didn't get an R rating. The first cut of it almost didn't get an R rating because it was so gory. And here's my main takeaway that I still can't get off my head... And still just a little... I don't know how I feel about this. Um, there are so many horses that die in this movie. And not only do they die, they fucking die. And it's awful. Awful, yeah. awful, 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 awful. I don't know what yeah. Mel Gibson has against horses or, I don't know, animals in general. But it seemed like every opportunity he took to show a horse dying on screen, boy mm -hmm. did he take it. Yeah, I don't know. It just that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Maybe once you or know, twice, I understand, but a million of them. Let's go. Let's let's tone it down a little, Mel. Apparently, this movie came very close to getting NC seventeen yes. rating, um, and it is. I did not look at the screen a lot because I don't like violence, and I. Um, <laughs> this and is I, so I not really, the movie for you. <laughs> uh, well, that's what I wrote in my letterboxed review. I wrote. Um, <laughs> I How many stars like, did you give it? How many stars? I gave uh, it two and a half out of five. I think you were nicer than me. I think I gave it two stars. <laughs> I mean, like, it's competently made. It is. <laughs> it is. Okay, okay, let's break this down. Let's break this down. Let's do... Let's if you want to find a movie. Pluses. Uh, the cinematography. Okay, yeah, so let's, let's talk about the cinematography. I do agree with you. I do think this is shot beautifully. There are some, like... I mean, when people are has... getting murdered. Well, yes, when the people aren't getting murdered. No, like, I mean, the way he shoots the landscapes, it's gorgeous. The way the it's opening. all set up. There were several times yeah. where I just kind of... But it's usually in the more intimate moments of the film, which I think are just moments that we just appreciate more in movies. Mm -hmm. It is quite beautiful. It's breathtaking. This is a really pretty movie. I understand yeah. that. Um, uh, there's uh, <laughs> the score... Is pretty... I liked the score. I did like yeah. the score. I do think the score was a little on the nose. <laughs> like, like, immediately we know we're in Scotland, and that's all the music is trying to tell you. <laughs> you know, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Let's get into the performances. The grand scheme I think, of things. I think some of the performances are okay here. I liked his... His friend, his sort of childhood friend who grows up with him, becomes a warrior with mm -hmm. him, that kind of big guy. I can't remember his name right now. Uh, nope, it's gone. His dad dies in it. Um, I think he does a pretty good job. I think he was, I don't know, the one I was holding on to the most, I guess. The women in this movie have absolutely 
I don't know, nothing to say. <laughs> they have literally nothing to say. Well, they just say. support the men. That's all and they And I think are. there were two women for. in this movie. Is that right? Two women? Did I count yeah. that right? <laughs> yeah, that, that he... He, he, both have he sex with Mel Gibson. Both, yeah, yeah. Both he have both sex of them. with him. Um, uh, <laughs> it is telling that this movie did not get a single acting nomination. Including Mel Gibson, which let's talk about his performance. What did you think of his performance? I, I mean, like... There, Mel Gibson was a movie star for a reason. He is not a bad actor. He is a he is he has a presence about him, and at the time he was a very good looking, in shape dude. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that I'm I'm not into it when I say dude. By the way, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like one of the least used words in my vocabulary. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but, like, and I don't know how much of this is just me knowing how he has been in his personal life toward people, the ways in which he has been anti-Semitic and racist. Homophobic. Homophobic. Um, but I, I just don't enjoy him on screen. Hmm. I know, that is, fine, that is but part of the challenge He's fine in the movie, yeah. but... I don't enjoy him on screen. True. Part of the challenge is, you're right, separating the the person, Mel Gibson, from the performance here that we have. We're going to have to do that a lot in some of these subsequent subsequent movies that we're going to be talking about. Um, but I agree with you. I think he does a fine job. I do not care for his dialect work. I think there are certain <laughs> sounds he hits correctly in Scottish, and then there are just straight-up sentences where I'm like, okay, did no one say, let's get a second take of this because that's just Mel Gibson. <laughs> There's a lot of that going on. It, it, it takes you out of it. This is why I bring it up. Does it go away the way in the... Uh, you know how Nicole Kidman introduces every AMC movie now? Um, <sighs> Don't remind me. I hate it so much. Did you Have you noticed that it's her normal Australian accent uh-huh. the entire time, except the last line when she turns to the camera and goes... Because here, they are. Whenever she says that, it's American for some reason. Mm-hmm. She, like, drops out of her Australian accent. Maybe she... And maybe I that's mean, part of the trouble, Technically, though. Technically, she, um, she's, uh, she is, she was born American as well as Australian, in case you didn't know. Right. Well, maybe that's part also, of the problem. Also, late snub to die for, Nicole Kidman. Anyway, sorry. Boom. There you go. There you go. <laughs> 1995, um, she I don't know. came on the scene. I don't know. Um, I think there are moments here where I'm like, there's some really good moments in this movie where he's, you know, um, trying to gather his army together to fight the England in that first battle. He has a nice speech, but it's not a speech we haven't heard before in other three-hour-long epic battle movies, you know? I think he... And here's the other thing, too, is I want to talk to you about this. This movie is constantly brought up and on many lists of the most factually inaccurate movies of all time. Usually, yeah. it's either 5, 4, 3, 2, or 1. <laughs> I mean, it's... Nothing is accurate in this movie. <laughs> Literally nothing. I think they got some <laughs> names right. There are some names correct. I was doing I mean, a lot of research on this. I mean, that it's his kid at the end, and it's not his kid. Not at all. <laughs> not yeah. at all. He did not like he never, sleep with it, the yes. Queen of England. <laughs> like, he didn't. No. Didn't it's uh, like... Didn't 
My favorite, though, is not even the costumes are correct in this. There's this article I read where um, a famed historian was had watched the movie and said, no, these whatever they are wearing, it's ridiculous and it looks silly. They're like, it would be if we were watching a movie set in, like, early 1800s United States, but they're wearing suit and ties like we're wearing today, but backward. <laughs> I'm like, yikes. <laughs> Not there even was, close to correct. <laughs> there was a historian named Sean Duffy. I got a quote from him, and he said... The Battle of Stirline Bridge could have mm-hmm. done with a bridge. It could have done with a bridge. <laughs> not even a bridge. Not even a bridge. And Mel's uh. Mel's response to all of this was to say it was more cinematically compelling his way, uh, the movie's way, the writer's way, than fact, accuracy, and history. And this so, one I want to talk to you about. Then, so here's here's the question: that It comes did out help of this. Scotland. It did lead to a boom of Scotland tourism. That's so great. there is that. Happy for but, them. But here's yeah. a question we should come to. Do you think movies that take such liberties should be in the best picture race? You know, or do we forgive them for entertainment's sake? Is it okay to sacrifice historically factual information for entertainment? Is that responsible? Is that okay? What do we think? Uh, well, it's difficult. I feel like it's a case-by-case situation because... It's difficult for me to speak to, despite the fact that my last name is Collins, which is a Scottish name, I might say. Um, I do not feel remotely qualified to say whether or not this bastardization of history is okay or not, because I am not actually Scottish, and that is, I think, for them to determine. Um, But I, I think we have seen quite a few different misrepresentations of history in movies over the years, maybe not this egregious, um, to where fact has no bearing on the story whatsoever. Usually when we see a misrepresentation of history, it has something to do with, like, race. The way that, um, the way that Gone with the Wind depicts slavery is a misrepresentation of history. And that, uh, and it doesn't it, it it's slavery was real and it shows that there's slavery but the way they depict the slaves is not historically accurate um this is like so this is different than that because this is a misrepresentation of of events uh, that are <laughs> a part like it's like if you um you know okay here's a good example i just saw being the ricardos mm-hmm um, loved it. Can't wait to talk about it. Anyway, the movie deals with um, three events that happened with Lucille Ball. And it puts them all in the same week. And it changes the episode of the show they were shooting when the main thing happened. Mm-hmm. So it changes those details. But the spirit of what it is trying to say is accurate and the events actually happened they just pushed them together so the story is two hours long okay i see what you're saying yeah and to me that is not a misrepresentation of history that is making history accessible okay so then would you argue then for braveheart i think he is going for the correct spirit 
of the character of the because you know this these things did happen like there was a William Wallace he did rise up against the English army these things did happen a lot of the the actual details within those sentences did not happen but the spirit is there you know what I, I mean think so would we end. give it a pass then the end ends up fucking that over pardon my friend, <laughs> with honestly. the baby <laughs> the because the, the child in by the womb. <laughs> representing someone who becomes the king as his child when that isn't true so people true. Wa- are gonna walk out of that and think that he had a kid that was the bloodline you know i mean that is true the royal bloodline and that that you're you're just you you getting the spirit right means that you can fudge some details but when it comes to something that is such important fact you gotta you gotta get that right true, <laughs> true. you know and it should be i mean like here's that... the deal rose and jack didn't exist <laughs> right but the titanic right. sank right and there could be people who existed like rose and jack you know what i'm saying so, right. Well, their existence in Titanic doesn't distract away from the actual facts of the the, the Titanic sinking. And they don't change right. the facts of the Titanic right. sinking. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. Uh, it should be noted, too, that there was a statue of William Wallace erected in Scotland, and it is one of the most hated statues in all of Scotland because they wrote Braveheart on the statue's shield. And people were pissed off because... You know, Mel Gibson is not their William Wallace, right? And the face looks like Mel Gibson. So there was so much graffiti happening on it and people, like, defiling it that they put a cage around it. So now you have a caged statue of William Wallace whose very name represents freedom. That's fucked up. (laughs) That's really fucked up. And I think that kind of sums up how our feelings are of the movie. <laughs> Just Although, a, to be fair, he did backward. end his life. He did end his life in custody. But, yes, he um, yes, he did. Yes, he did. So, okay, so let's to... let's get into another couple of things here. What do you think in this movie is, would you consider to be the great scene? The scene that you would play on its, on Oscar night, as they name this off as one of the nominations for Best Picture. What is your best scene? <laughs> I know I'm trying to think too. <laughs> uh I mean there's some images that that I thought were compelling because we talked about the cinematography. You know, I um you know, I mean like there's the iconic of mm-hmm. him of Mel Gibson running into battle, mm-hmm. you know, with the paint on his face and everything. I mean like there's there's little stuff like that, you know. Um I just, I mean, like, I, I may have to take knock it down to two stars, Sam, because this, I, um, I just, I, I didn't like it, Sam. Mm. <laughs> That's so. Fair. I don't. I just didn't like it. It's just that. I just can't think of a single scene that I would want to watch again. No, that's fair. You know, the only one that I can kind of think of that brings to mind is that the main battle sequence when they do defeat England in that first battle. Minus the mm. killing of the horses. Really fucking hate that. But I think there's some good stuff there. I think there's some good suspense happening. There's a lot of good stuff going on within that scene. Um, I do want to say, too, I think it's really kind of coincidental that in just a few years from right now we have mel gibson again 
doing literally this exact same story, but the American version in the movie The Patriot. It's like a carbon copy of this film, but American Revolutionary War. Do you find that interesting? I kind of think that's really interesting. <laughs> I mean, it, he found a formula and decided to stick with it, you know. But it should also be noted that The Patriot is also listed on many lists of most factually incorrect movies of all time and as it, well. It did not get the reception that that Braveheart did with critics either. So, it should also be noted that another movie on most factually incorrect movies of all time is Apocalypto, which was directed by who? Tell me who? Tell no, me who? Mel fucking Gibson. He likes to play with history, and I don't really care for that. But you Not know, it's, that. you know, oddly, he sticks very close to the Gospels for the Passion of the Christ. <laughs> True. Wow. Almost too so close. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. So I uh, guess that's the only history that he accepts. <laughs> okay. Okay. So of these five nominated movies, rants, uh-huh. I'll list them off for the people at home. We had Apollo 13, we had Babe, Braveheart, The Postman, and Sense and Sensibility. Of these five nominated movies, what's your best picture winner? Uh, Apollo 13. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That yeah. feels right, right? That feels right. Yeah. Apollo 13 feels, would be mine as well. It feels right. It feels right. It it's a good movie. Like Apollo 13 is a good movie. I really, really enjoy Apollo 13. Um, uh, okay, so other without the confines of the nominations, nominated films, what is your best movie of 1995 uh before sunrise mm. oh my god i think it's mine too <laughs> i'm gonna have to go with before sunrise yeah it's that or bridges of madison county but ah god i think as a whole before sunrise takes it there are there are parts and pieces of bridges that i don't care about i don't like the whole book ending of it with their the, her kids finding the stories i think all that shit can be cut out of the movie but before sunrise, sunset, sun, which one? Sunrise. <laughs> Shit. Sunrise. Before sunrise is perfect from start to finish. Yes, it, it is. It really is. And one of the rare cases where sequels match. Oh, quality. quality. Absolutely. Both of them. Absolutely. And, okay. if I, and if we get another before movie um, in... I, well, I guess it would have come out this. Uh, it would be coming out next year if it if it if if they do it every nine years. If we get another one, I will not be. I will not not see that opening night. <laughs> oh my god! I will go to in a heartbeat. It'll be great. It'll be great. Okay, let's get into what we're going to talk about next. Yeah, nineteen ninety six. Our best picture winner was The English Patient. I've seen this. Have you seen this movie? It's my first time seeing The English oh, Patient. Goody. <laughs> I, okay, I have, I have a prediction. My prediction is, I think you'll enjoy it more than Braveheart. <laughs> well, Sam, that is a low bar to clear. <laughs> Unless this next movie is the greatest show on earth, oh I'm pretty God. sure. Part two. <laughs> Part two. <laughs> Betty Hutton returns. Unless no. that is... Unless Charlton Heston is in this movie just carrying a gun around, I'm pretty sure that I'll like it more than, you know, than Braveheart. I think you will, too. Join us next week, folks. We will be discussing the 1996 Oscars and the winner, The English Patients.